Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so, so lucky to have an amazing person, an amazing guest. His name is Mark Schleff. And thank you, Mark, for being here today. Hey, welcome you too, also. I'm glad to be here. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark. Uh, Mark is retired Navy. Um, he, as he retired as a chief in the Navy. Um, 22 years as part of a Navy deep sea diving and salvage team. Um, he does uh, submarine uh, rescue. He's a Navy diver. He conducted salvage missions all around the world. Um, and he works as a private contractor right now. He has an amazing story. He's part of a very, very elite group of people um, in our military and now as a contractor. But thank you so, so much for being here. And also, I did not forget this. You're also a, a wonderful hub, hus, husband and you and, and a great father. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. One quick fix there. They, I, I'm actually working for the federal government. So I work for the Naval Sea Systems Command, not not the contractor. I have a contractor that I support in the operations. Oh, thank you so much for clarifying that. You, you do so much, that's for sure. So the yeah. question I got for you, we'll start off by saying, you know, um, where were you born and raised? So I was born in Westerly, Rhode Island. We lived for a short time in Connecticut next to the naval base of New London where my dad was working. He transferred in 1971 out to Los Angeles to work for Honeywell, and we moved out there and that was the formative growing up years was in Covina, California, at the San Gabriel Valley, right up against the mountains. Uh, it was a it was a great time to live in Southern California for sure. So how old were you when you moved to Southern Cali? I think it was seven years old, if I do the math right. Um, moved into second grade there and, and started. So really, that was the biggest memories were all from that point forward. And you know, you're eight getting up every day, do the paper out, get on the bike, come back when the streetlights came on. You know, that was collecting Coke bottles to have money to get soda for the day. That was the big thing. So you came out to the, you came out to California with your mom and dad. Do you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have three brothers and one sister. I'm the youngest of five. So we had a very full house. Um, oh my God. So you're the youngest of five. Oh my God. And uh, how that house was very active growing up, I assume. And what kind of stuff did you guys do growing up? So we had a big range. My oldest brother is seven years older than I am. So we had a scope of people always at the house, in the yard, the garage. We ended up with a pig pog table out there for a while. There was a pool table. So there was always groups, um, kids in the neighborhood, all hanging out together. We played ding dong ditch. We had the standard fair fun football in the street uh tag touch it was it was a really really great place to grow up and how what what was your relationship like when you're growing up with your parents your mom and your dad so my dad uh, for work actually like me traveled quite a bit for the department of the navy and doing training and teaching so he was gone quite a bit my mom was amazing she carried the load for us um, she made sure that we were well-rounded, lots of chores, lots of doing school, but she always took us on vacations in our family station wagon, towing the pop-up trailer and going on wonderful adventures. She's driven, She drove us cross-country three times from Connecticut to California when we moved out and then took us back for vacation and brought us back. 
by herself because my dad was working. He'd fly in and meet us and do vacation and then head out. So she was an amazing person and was a good structure for us with uh, making us well-rounded. And what, what kind of work did your mom and dad do? So my dad was an engineer working for Honeywell, helping out at the Department of the Navy for training systems. Um, he was uh, a chief in the Navy also, and he did uh, submarines and surface ships during his tour in the Navy. But he retired and went to work for Honeywell. And during when he was in the Navy, he got his degree and and pursued engineering. Wow, what what is that? What is pursued engineering? I've never heard of it. No, no, he just pursued an engineering. I got you. Oh, you pursued engineering. I got you. I got you. And then um, what was it like in your household growing up? Was your dad your role model? Was your mom your role model? What was your relationship like? So I think it was a, a little of everything. My dad was kind of a quiet guy. He was um, a little more introverted. Not sure if he really ever got how to deal with kids, um, you know, and having five of them running around all the time was quite a bit of a load. So, but he was always... Um, fixing, building, doing, um, forever keeping everything running around the house. And so he, in that sense, he was a great role model, had a great set of tools in the garage. We all had very serious rules about how to use them and clean them and put them back and, you know, make sure that we we knew how, what the tool was used for and used it in the right way. So he was a great role model in, in that aspect. And I think my brothers and sister and I all picked up on the uh, can't sit still, we're always out doing something. And, and he kind of had that same tenor about him. So it was, it was a good learning relationship, but he was, he was kind of quiet. And, and also later on in my high school years, when everybody else was kind of gone, I got to do some really cool trips with him and get to know him a little better. So um, I think down the road that that helped, but he did set the structure for all of us with our good hard working relations and, and keeping, keeping ourselves busy and, and going all the time. And, and your mom, what did your, what did your mom do? So she had a bunch of different jobs, worked at the bank. She, she worked at a couple um, clothing stores and she did some support for Goodwill and in the donation center there, but mostly she was taking care of us on a, on a fairly full-time basis. Um, uh, it, you know, five kids kind of, kind of a handful. Yeah, that's a lot. And what were, who, what kind of role models did you have growing up? Like, did you have any superheroes or like, who are the people you, when you were young, what did you want to do when you grew up? So I wasn't really sure, but you know, I, I grew up in the era where there was a lot of um, old Westerns and war movies and, and some serious um, older movies. I had a period of time where I had some medical issues. So I got to watch a lot of uh, older movies and some TV time and and so that became a kind of a little bit of a role model to me, I guess. And, you know, the whole John Wayne era of uh, do the right thing, be a stand up guy. You know, there's kind of rules for being for being a man. So all that kind of, I guess, spilled over into the generation we are. And after you, I, I guess, what after you when you entered high school, um, what was that like for you? And you said you went on some trips with your father. And did you where did you see yourself going at that point? Well, see, that's that's an interesting thing. During high school, I, I um, thought I was leaning towards um, agriculture. So we had in Covina, Covina High School has a FFA program, which is Future Farmers of America. So they have a farm on the campus. But Northview High School, where I went to school, did not. I didn't want to give up all my friends in my high school. So I ended up going to both high schools. 
And I did four years um, raising animals at Covina High School for my agricultural classes and then doing my standard classes at Northview and, and sports with all, with all my friends. So when I was done, I, I, I had determined that a life of a, being a farmer was really probably not for me. And I, I spent a lot more time, ended up in my last, you know, junior and senior year going to the beach more and, and, and doing a lot more um, water time. My mom loved the ocean and the beach. So we all through the years, we spent a lot of time vacationing at the beach. And, and so it kind of grew on me and I didn't know it yet, but the water would become a very important part of my life. I ended up at, and as soon as I graduated high school, I, I hadn't decided on anything I really wanted to do. And a friend offered an opportunity for me to move to Lake Havasu, Arizona, and um, take the summer summer off and, and go and, you know, e explore what I wanted to do. And so I, I went there and I found a job uh, working at Lake Havasu Marina. So I was on the water in small boats, starting to learn about engine rebuilding and, and dealing with um, boating and the different aspects of it. And I, I really kind of took to it. I didn't know it at the time, but also it, um, living in Lake Havasu had its own drawbacks. It's a very, very party town. It was all about um, a lot of people vacationing all the time and your friends coming out. So it, it became um, not a structure for beginning a career or a lifetime, but more of a, a layover into finding what the next thing was going to be. And, and I ended up having to leave Lake Havasu because it was just no, not enough structure for me. I needed something a lot more. And um, so I ended up moving back to California. And that's when I started looking into the military and, and determining which, which way I wanted to go. So were you in high school? Were you an athlete? Did you, you said you're around the water a lot. Have you always liked the water? I have. I always enjoyed swimming in, in the ocean. I did a lot of body surfing. That was really uh, some friends and I, we, we, spent a lot of time driving back and forth and scraping money together, gas money together to get from Covina to the beach to so we could go and uh, spend our free time body surfing. We all had after school jobs. Um, we all had uh, chores and responsibilities, but we seemed to work it out. But the, um, the, the love of the ocean really kind of settled in, I guess, during that period. And it would become a big part of my life later on. And did your dad have any part of that? Because you said your dad was in the Navy. What kind of trips did you say you were? You took some pretty amazing trips with him. Where did you guys end up going? Oh, no, it was mostly family trips, driving around the uh, Southwest and Utah. My aunt and uncle were living in, in Utah at the time. So we, uh, we would go out and see them regularly and do some fun things up in that region. So it really helped to cement my love of the Southwest also, which would become a major part of my life. And when you were in Lake Havasu, you said there was, obviously there was something that kind of, um, something that sounds like it wasn't too healthy for you. And so you decided to, to leave that environment. Did, did you get to a point where, look, I don't know where I'm going with my life. What am I going to do? And there must've been a, some, was there any type of event that happened that just said, you know, I've, I've got to get out of here. This is just not good for me. Well, it's, I started, on and off community college and the partying just kept getting in the way and I wasn't finishing my classes and I just couldn't lock down and, and the work, it, although I enjoyed it was not a career that I was thinking I would be tied to. It was, um, 
I was looking for some more adventure or something a little more outdoors. So yeah, between the partying and the uh, the atmosphere, it it was not the right thing for me, and I needed I needed to go find some structure and some some career. And that's when I was talking to my dad about his career in the Navy, and no one else in my family decided to do the military uh, direction, but for me, it seemed like it might be a good fit. <laughs> and what were your grades like in high school? Uh, uh, B's mostly. I, I was, you know, I had my select A's and my select C's, but uh, it was pretty steady across the board there. And when did you when did you decide to join the military? How old were you? I guess at that point I was 19 or 20 that I was really defining that that might be the answer for me. So I went to the recruiters, the different areas and, and looked into different things. The first thing I thought I wanted to do was try and uh, go in the army and maybe fly helicopters. And that didn't work out with my um, my physical fitness, had a little bit of drawback there. So I went to the Navy and they were they were quite happy to take me as I was. And um, the, the one thing I was in the recruiter's office and I saw there was a a job there for Navy divers. And, you know, I said, water, that, that sounds like something I'd like to do. And so, you know, I joined the Navy and started my career. Now, when you joined the Navy, was your track or your job going to be a diver? Or did you, you had to go through boot camp first? Or did you always know you wanted to go into diving? And what did you know about diving at the time? I mean, if I saw that, I wouldn't know. I'd assume, I don't know what that really means. So, what does that mean? That's a great question. So to become a Navy diver at the time, you had to have another career within the Navy. So it was a secondary selection and it was a secondary, secondary school. So I had to pick a um, career that was associated that you could become a diver with. So they had one that was called a signalman, which was what it sounds like. You were a uh, visual signaler for on shipboard and and communications, visual communications on, on ships. And it was a uh, starting point for, the, for me to get in. And so I went into the Navy, went to boot camp, and then I did my testing and got selected to go to dive school, passed the exams and or the physical fitness and had the scores. I went and did my um, A school for signalmen, passed that. So then from there, I got, I was able to get orders to go to dive school. And I ended up in Hawaii at the dive school for second class dive school. That ended up uh, being a great uh, fit for me because it was uh, physically challenging, mentally challenging, and it it really locked me into an understanding of the teamwork notion and, and trusting your buddy. I mean, you you get that in your field. You you got to know the guy beside you can do what he has to do, and he's got your back. And and that's really was cemented me into the Navy diving community was being in that school and, and going through that process and learning about trust and uh, working. And what, what kind of lessons did you learn during boot camp? Was boot camp, was it fun for you? Was it tough for you? And what did you learn in boot camp, if anything? Um, it was just the beginning, an uh, eye-opener for the variety of, of people in the world. So I, I always you know, growing up in Southern California, there's a huge variety of different uh, cultures and people. And I never really understood it. It was just all my friends at school. You know, I didn't really get the scope of what it meant. But the one thing that going into boot camp, it, it opened my eyes to the kind of the cultural differences and 
what some people brought in as understanding or maybe even baggage to what they were used to. And, and so I think boot camp helped to break that down a bit. It, it, it made you realize, you know, you're all in it together. And, and that's one thing about the military is it doesn't matter color, shape, size, the person next to you is, is the person you're, you're out there defending the country with. And they're just as invested as you are. And we all, we all have the same, inner needs and, and workings to make it all work. And how did you get the fortitude to stay in you know, when you're going through boot camp? What kind of things do you draw on to just make sure, hey, I got to get through this. I know this is tough, but I'm going to get through this. And I know I want to go, I want to be a diver. So what kind of things and yeah, characteristics do you think that you had at the time that allowed you to get through that? You know, I'm not sure, but it, it, it was, it was definitely um, a new and challenging experience, but it, it it didn't seem that hard to me. I I felt like I I fit right in, and and I felt I could I could really achieve there. And and I ended up working towards becoming the master at arms for our our um, our class, and and it worked out. That helped me um, to to learn about leadership and the right some of the rights and some of the wrongs. You can definitely uh, make some big mistakes, but you learn from them. Then. And so that helped. So, no, I thought I thought boot camp was good and challenging, but it, I didn't think it was that big of a struggle. I think maybe the base my dad had built, you know, or my my family had with just hard working ethic, really is what carried me through. And and you so you went to dive school after. And what was the process to get into the dive school? And can you explain some of the challenges that most people have in dive school? I assume, obviously it's you have to be very comfortable in the water and working in the water for long periods of time. Can you go through that for me? Yes. Yeah, so there, so this, the, the selection process is, is first one, just understanding your scoring and, and making sure that you have the aptitude to do the testing and the classroom work that goes along with it. Then the other part is the physical fitness. So they, they do make it a little bit challenging so that you have to, um, they know that once you get into that that kind of uh, physical environment, you'll be able to stand up to it and you won't have any problems. And then there's the medical background. You have to be you know, medically fit also. Um, during boot camp, I ended up doing a, a, a it's different now. They have a full um, Navy diver is a rating in the Navy now. Back in, in my day, like I said earlier, it wasn't. Um, so. Today, the process is a little bit different, but back then it was you went to boot camp and at boot camp, you went through the testing. They verified that you could do all of everything you needed to do. And then a recruiter worked with you to get you into the class for the next diving class. And so to become a hard hat diver, it was the second class dive school for me. Luckily, I got it in Hawaii, which was a wonderful place to go and, and do the training. So what, what does hard hat diver mean? So um, there's scuba divers, there's um, hard hat divers, scuba is self, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. So a scuba diver is kind of like what your, your standard um, recreational divers use equipment for when they're out there enjoying the, the ocean and lakes and, and rivers of the world. Um, hard hat divers are more in line with what, what we see commercially, you know, remember the old old John Wayne movies with the big helmet and the big suit and he's walking the bottom with the hoses coming off. So that's a surface supply diving system uh, or hard hat diving. And what kind of training did you do 
at least that first part. Now, I know diving has changed uh, over time. I'm, I'm sure when you started it, it's advanced a lot since that time. So how technical was it and what kind of skills did you have to do to master it and, and to graduate from those schools? I know it's difficult to go through those and graduate. So what was that process like? So we, we in my second class school, there's two back in my day, there were two classes that you really went through. One was second class training, which is what got you into the fleet to be a diver. And you worked for a few years and got your um, training and um, built up your skill sets. And then if you, if you did well, you could go back to first class dive school and, and become a first class diver, which is a higher level of uh, supervisory and and um, more skill sets that that came with that. But the second class school, the first one I went to, uh, we had 31 or 32 guys that started with my class and we ended up finishing at 11. So there was um, a lot of guys that thought they wanted to be there or physically fit to to be there or had the mental capacity to get through the challenges. but during the whole time you're doing classroom work every day, you're doing physical fitness every day. And then you start in on the, on the underwater part, um, starting out first with the scuba set and, and going through um, pool week, which is getting comfortable in the water with, with your gear and your team and your instructors are teaching you how to, how to figure out what the, you know, what to do with it all and, and how it, how you fit into the environment and how the environment works around you. So, Going through that whole uh, purpose, the end of pool week is the last part is when the, the instructors come in, you're using your scuba, your self-contained underwater breathing uh, system, and they come down and they do what they called back then was it was shark sharking, which they would come down and attack you in the water and remove some of your gear and spin you around and make sure that you could, when something bad happened, you could meet the challenge and you could get past it and put all your gear back together, get it back on and, and work. We lost quite a few people during that week. Um, so it was, it was very challenging. And then if you made it through that section, the rest of it was grades and passing the courses and testing and then the physical fitness. And then you had to start working in the water, doing skill sets, um, you know, working on different projects and building things. And once you, um, mastered all that and you made it to the end you became a second class navy diver so when you went through that testing process was it scary that did you at any point did you think i'm not going to be able to do this or were you confident or how did you get through that because that that's a lot of stress knowing that you know you know what they're going to do and you saw other people fail at like what got you through that so I, I was actually very comfortable in the water and I felt pretty strong. Now, my partner, my first partner in that series, he um, was not comfortable and, and he lost it. And he tried to drag us both to the surface and he ended up uh, kind of freaking out and he, he ended up leaving the program. But that was the scariest part of it was watching that other person um, kind of lose control and try and take me with them. And that's kind of cements in that whole feeling of, you know, you've, you've got to know the, the guy next to you or the, the, the woman next to you can do what they're supposed to do and, and stay calm and, and work with you when, when things go bad. And so that's, that was probably the kind of the biggest eye opener out of it. The rest of it I thought was exciting and fun and, you know, challenging. And, and it was, it was a really good time. Were there a lot of women 
in in your field in your job position when you started i assume there's more now but were there a lot of women at that at that point in your career at, at that point there weren't a lot there were a few and they were really exceptional people with a lot of talent and um it's grown over the years i'm not sure what the numbers are today but um my personal experience was i not a lot of it um more officers um were women diving officers than than actually enlisted at the time, but there there was definitely a lot of great enlisted women in the diving program. So how did they start? How did they train you? You said they do the scuba portion, and then after the scuba portion, how do they train you for the hard hat portion? So they have a they have a tank, and then they have a dive boat. So you first start out in the classroom, getting to know the equipment. You have to understand it, take it apart, put it together, all the workings of it. And then you can go into the tank and, and get used to wearing it and figure out how to use it. And once you get those skills down, you start doing your training projects. Um, after you, you know, got everybody's gotten through all that and are comfortable together, you build a team up. And at the whole time you're building together, who's going to be doing the communications in the surface, who's in the water. It's a whole team who's running the air banks for giving you the air source. And you have to know how that works. And if there's a problem, what you have to do to go change over to fix it. All these things are different stations you'll go through as you're going through the training and learning how to use all, all your new skills and build the team. And, and at the end, that's really what you're doing is you've, you've educated everybody in the full scope of all the work that you do together. And then, you know, you've got an accomplished set of skill set that can be applied anywhere within your community with your, with your buddies. So, did you have a team that's with you? So when you go down, is there like a group of people that work with you? So you like establish a team and who is there a group leader and how does that work when you're going through the training process? I know they wanted to get, want you to get used to that, but when you've completed that training, um, what kind of revolutions do they put you through so that you can get used to that working by you? Because virtually you're by yourself down there. So. Well, you know, you, that's, you say that, but most of the time you're not by yourself. You've you've got a buddy that you're usually working with, or there's there's a somebody standby up on the surface that's waiting to come down and, and work with you. Or if something goes bad, they can come down and rescue you. Um, you've got communications, not in, in the scuba, but in the in the hard hat um, surface applied diving. You're always going to have the communications to the top side, so you're talking to them. And nowadays with technology, they've got cameras going all the time and internal monitoring systems so there's a lot of new skill sets but back then it was really you you know communication with the top side so you would have you know a small group of people that the diving supervisor the gas racks attendants the communications the divers attendants and then the divers um, all that together made up the dive team and um, that's how you went out and executed the work so how when you're going through the training program for the hard hat, as you said, how, how much does that suit weigh? Oh, it was, so by the time um, I went into dive school, the class before mine was, was the last class that used the Mark V dive suit. So we didn't actually get to use it. We were using a lighter, newer, single kind of suit, uh, coverall suit with some weights in it and a, and a hard hat called the Mark 12. And then we went to the Mark 21 which was an even lighter, better, newer version of the diving helmets that they use today. And there's a lot of variations on them out throughout the world today. But our our system that we we started working with was kind of beyond that super heavy old school leather and in, in uh, 
brass uh, diving system that you see in all the old movies, but uh, it was still, there was, you know, uh, it was a good physical fitness requirement to, to get all that gear on and get down on the bottom and do the, do the work we had to do. And I, one thing I always, people always say, so as a diver, you like to swim a lot. And I said, no, as a diver, I like to walk on the bottom. I don't, I don't really <laughs> typically enjoy swimming that much. How, how much do, how much does the old suit weigh compared to the suits now? One, 144 pounds was uh, with all the weight in the helmet. Uh, I think, is the total for the Mark V. Like I said, I never dove the Mark V, so I'm only quoting from memory. But then the newer stuff was um, in the water and just a few pounds of weight. And then whatever your body weight you needed to compensate your weight belt uh, to offset the buoyancy in the water of, of yourself in the in the helmet. So it really wasn't physically, it's, I guess, demanding, but it, it didn't seem that. When you were going through the training, what was the the biggest challenge for people to get through was it being being in closed spaces confined you know kind of in confined spaces when you're in that suit by yourself or what was the most difficult challenge for people to get through that school no i i heard other people talk about their their different challenges um yeah there was definitely some some folks had some issues with um the close enclosed spaces and the a lot of times you would diving and working down there there'd be very low visibility so you could lose direction you could you could not see what's happening around you and disorient um uh, mentally i think it's as tough as it is physically because you're you know cold hot um in an in a different and unknown environment um definitely definitely challenging to the the whole spirit to keep yourself calm and focused on the work and do what you need to do with all these other, you know, distractions and things going on around you. So what kind of tools did you use? If you had a, you were in a tough situation when you were down there too long, like you said, I, I think not only is it physically challenging, but it definitely is mentally challenging because you're in the dark a lot of the times and you're down there. You don't know what's down there a lot of times. And, or you might get, like you said, your orientation may be off. What did you do to stay focused? I think for me, uh, that not being that guy, like I didn't want to ruin the job or make it go extra long or keep everybody else waiting. And, and so the struggle was, you know, how long do you do something wrong or not get it done and before you ask for help? And, and I guess, at, you know, at some point I, I figured out early on, it's better to ask for help or explain the situation to try and figure out how to get it done than to sit down there and just suffer in silence or um, stew. But there was definitely some cold, long dives and and days where I was getting to the point where I just probably should have gotten out sooner than I did. Um, but you want to finish the job, so there's it's in you to be the be the guy that could get it done. That kind of scenario. So what was your first job? So you know what? I just finished. I just I'm all done with this, the training. They give me my first assignment. What was your first assignment? And where did you go and what, what kind of work did you do? So I was I was right out of dive school in Hawaii. I was very lucky to get selected to go to mobile diving and salvage unit one in, in Pearl Harbor. And they have two sides. They had a flyaway system, flyaway side for salvage. But they also had a ship's husbandry side, which took care of all the ships in the harbor. 
And at the time, there was also another detachment in, in Pearl Harbor that did the repair of the submarines, the husbandry work for them. But we took care of all the surface ships and supported some of the other ancillary pier inspections and other inspections around um, the island in the area right there at uh, Pearl Harbor. So I, I worked on fixing ships and maintaining the different um, actions associated with ship's husbandry, patching, plugging, changing out propellers, things like that. And then when did you move over to the rescues, the submarine rescue side? And did you have to go to school for that? No. So that came much later in my career. So I, I, I spent um, time in Hawaii. I did my tour there and then I left. And like I told you, there's a second school beyond second class dive school. You go to first class dive school, which is really about becoming a supervisor and, and going to the next level and, and kind of expanding your skill of, of diving and capability. And so when I graduated from, from there, I ended up going to a salvage ship, um, which support they used to, we don't have them anymore, but they used to support the salvage Navy around the world, taking care of towing and repairing and salvaging uh, ships and equipment. And so I had a great tour um, in the salvage Navy, which is a different skill set than the underwater husbandry um, diving community. So you, that's one set and then salvage is another set. And so I did that and then I left there and I actually went to a research and development tour where I supported um, some projects that it was um, different areas where they were researching, trying new things and doing different things, not necessarily in diving, but other aspects of the Navy where they happen underwater. So supported that. And I, I really enjoyed that tour for um, the purposes of understanding and learning new things and seeing how different um, processes work. So that was very helpful. And then after that, I went back to another um, uh, ship's husbandry tour in San Diego. And at the, at the, towards the end of the other ship's husbandry tour, I was getting a little bored. I guess I, I have a little trouble sitting still or, or staying focused on one thing for too long. Um, and I started to look for some new adventure or new things to, um, to, to change, change up what I was doing. I was, I, I just can't, sit still that long without getting bored. And so a friend of mine um, had heard about a new uh, diving system that was coming on to support um, submarine rescue, which was a one atmosphere dive suit. And the, the diving Navy was uh, doing some testing with one to see how it would work supporting our needs in the Navy. And a one atmosphere dive suit, basically it's an enclosed suit where the inside atmosphere is always one atmosphere, just like we are on the surface right now, um, as opposed to if you're diving in um, a wetsuit and you're exposed to all the external pressures and the breathing gases and everything that, that works on that. So in particular, the one atmosphere dive suit, you can get in it, go down, stay as long as you want, come up, have lunch, get back in, go down, stay as long. It's like being in a mini submarine. So that was a different aspect. And I found that to be very interesting. So. Um, one of my mentors at the time, the master diver that I was working for, um, he talked me into not leaving the diving community and going over and checking out the uh, deep submergence unit, which had a lot of um, different deep submergence vehicles, and they were supporting submarine rescue at the time. So I did an interview over there and looked into it, and it convinced me that I would stay in the community, and that's... That was my 11-year mark or 10-year mark, 10-and-a-half-year mark in the Navy, and I transferred over, and I started my 
understanding before with submarine rescue. And how, okay, so let's, I'm going to juxtapose you two. How deep did you typically work prior to going to the submarine side? What is the average depth you would go down and how long were you down there? And this sounds like a crazy question. I mean, um, you're down there for quite a bit of time. Have you ever been in, in, in any situations where you're like, this is just not a good situation. I got to get out of here. Or did you run into any, uh, some animals that didn't like you down there? <laughs> well, you know, there was, um, so basic for the underwater ship's hazardry, you would, you would be working at very shallow depths on the bottom of the ships for very long periods of time, uh, depending on what you're doing, or it could be a short, real quick jump in the water, do your thing and get out. So it, it kind of varied, but it mostly everything to do with underwater husbandry was um, shallow water and, and, you know, technically challenging in that you're either putting things together, putting things on, fixing things of that nature. Um, they also have underwater welding groups that, that we had supporting the Navy. They were specialized skill sets. I never worked in that area, but those guys were really good and um, did a lot of great work with underwater welding. Um, so that, that underwater ships, hydrogen, like I said, was shallower water, better, tighter skill sets. Uh, the um, other jobs like salvage could be deep water um, up to 190 feet um, on air. Um, we had mixed gas down to 300 feet where the guys could go and, and work at um, different periods of time. Now, that's all controlled on on your depth and bottom time was all relative, right? The deeper you went, the, the less time you had to work down there. So that that's relative. Um, so the salvage and other work in the deep ocean was, you know, different depth and time related. So so up to so you went up to 300 feet with the suit how far can you go down with with the with the modern suits so no that's basically still those kind of timelines are going there's saturation divers that have much deeper depths but they have a whole different system that they work to do much deeper depths i don't work in saturation diving so i'm not real i don't want to speak too much of it but those guys are crazy they do awesome things at deep depths and have expose their bodies to tremendous, um, you know, hard work and hardship. Um, not, not my thing. I was like, I wanted the adventure, but I didn't want to wear myself out and kill myself. So, um, but those guys are awesome and they have great skill sets too. It's just a different, um, kind of breed of diver. Um, for me, the goats going from the surface applied diving and, you know, mostly everything we did was below 130 feet. Um, you get to those deeper depths. It's got to be a real purpose and you don't have a lot of time. So um, it's, it takes a lot more effort and there's a lot more um, work up and understanding to work in those kind of longer term environments at the deeper salvage or other depths. Um, Did you for the underwater with going over to the submarine rescue, um, the one atmosphere suit is it's basically it's you're constrained by how much oxygen you carry on board with you and how long you want to stay in or, or can tolerate physically working on the bottom. And did you have any uh, precarious situations down there? Any run-ins with animals and sharks or anything else? Do you need to worry about that at all? Or it's just something you just deal with? You know, mostly like anything in the wild, they're more afraid of us than, uh, than we are actually of them. But although there were times where I was pretty afraid of some of the sharks in the area we're at, but I did have one day where I was working um, on the bottom and, uh, a shadow, a very large shadow crossed over the top of me while I was working. And by the time I turned around and looked up, I, you know, with the visibility, I, I couldn't see it, but it sure left an eerie feeling because if it was that big, there was 
really nothing I was going to do about it. Wow. Those were very rare instances. And like I said, they were mostly more afraid of us than we were of them. And you became a team leader later. And, and, you know, I know you uh, had a group, a team that you supervised. And um, when you started working the submarine rescue, how difficult was it to rescue these submarines in the operations? How far are you going down? Are you using submersibles, I assume? Yeah, so the, the U.S. Navy submarine rescue program has um, evolved from using um, two independent free-swimming submarines that they had, the DSRVs, deep submergence rescue vehicles, for years, and which um, were worldwide flyaway capable, but they were very big, and it took... Um, a lot of effort and it was only a few um, vessels and submarines around the world that once you got them transported to a place they could actually move them into the rescue zone we used to have a lot of uh, salvage ships around the navy to support submarine rescue but as those started as we started shrinking that fleet um, we were counting more on the flyaway aspect of the um, deep submergent rescue vehicles and the supporting equipment under under um remotely operated vehicles to help do inspections and hookups and, and support. And we had the um, submarine rescue chamber, which has been in the Navy for um, 70 years. And it's supported by uh, surface supplied air in a, in a very big, large chamber. Um, that system is still um, with the Navy today, but in very limited use. It's only two, two chambers left in operation and they're at the undersea rescue command now in San Diego. Um, there's um, other, uh, we moved on from the deep submergence rescue vehicles because of the, the scope and level of effort to get them around the world and then support them when they were overseas. And they developed a, a singular um, surface tethered, powered and carrying, self-carrying um, rescue system now that can rescue 16 personnel and um, it goes down to 2000 feet of seawater. Is it difficult to get, as a leader, is it difficult to get a good crew together? I mean, is there, I know you have very, very difficult, stressful work. What do you think some of the challenges are putting a team together? Well, so that's an interesting aspect because we've got um, such a small group of people that you've already kind of whittled down by putting them through the dive school and then you know, years of experience working in, in the actual diving community, um, you, you tend to whittled out the, the ones that are not motivated to be there, so to speak. Um, so we're really, um, at that point, you're, you're choosing from a, a really great group of guys and figuring out, you know, who wants to work in what areas. And um, so it wasn't as hard as you would think to put together a team. There were a lot of volunteers and a lot of people that were willing to take on the challenges of, of doing the job that we wanted them to do. So it was actually an honor and, and it made it a lot easier to um, you know, lead a team when, when everybody there is wanting to be there and they've got the, the skill set to support it. And what kind of characteristics do you look for in, in your staff? Like what are some of the good qualities that you are looking for in your staff? You know, honestly, for me, I wanted diversity. I, I was looking for, um, you know, you wanted the guy that was the great mechanic. Technically, you know, he could fix or put together anything. 
there was the guy that was a jack of all trades. He would pretty much float between all the different things you had to have. You needed the admin person because trust me, I'm terrible at my administrative work. There's all, you know, with everything in the government, there's a ton of paperwork and keeping it all straight and, and, and making it all correct for the document support that you need to do. It's always great to have someone that's got that skill set. Um, and then overall, it's just, you know, the motivation to be there is the biggest thing. Uh, you've you've got to have a desire to be in the place that you're at. Otherwise, you're just not going to step up to the level that's that's needed of you, I think, in almost all cases. And we're not always 100% up all the time. You know, we have our ups and downs and everybody, you know, has to figure out what their motivations are. And, and, and as a leader, you have to kind of learn what motivates your people also and, and take that into consideration as you're putting your team together and, and working together. And really, once you get everybody kind of on the same plan, it, it all kind of flows and everybody does their job. And it's not so much as leading as it is, you know, just guiding and working together. And I've heard from some of uh, some people that know you that you're just you're the type of person that you will actually do it yourself before asking anyone else to do it. And I got that from a nice inside source. Um, where did where did you get that from? I, I know when you when they rolled out no systems and so forth, you would never ask the men and women that you supervised to do it before you would do it yourself. And where did you where do you think you learned that from? You know, I think it was a kind of a like it goes back to the roots we were talking about earlier, the generation where we grew up and some of the old, you know, old school mentality of, you know, if, if why would I ask somebody else to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself? And I would never put somebody in harm's way before knowing exactly what that harm was and, and how I would deal with it. So I could understand better how they're going to deal with it. Right. If I don't understand it, there's no way I can help them get through it. So that's, I think, part of the basis is, is is if you don't have the experience or go out and try and uh, understand the experience, then you, you won't be a help to the others as they're dealing with it. And what do you think is the best quality in a, in your, that you've had in terms of leaders? What do you think makes a good leader? Wow, that, that's a really great question. So my first great master diver that I worked for was the hardest guy he was just tough, but he taught me so much and built me into, um, a, you know, shaped me into a, a, a good base for all the rest of my divers training and learning that I would get for the rest of my career. But he was, he was a seriously outstanding, um, hardcore, go get it done kind of guy. And it was kind of no fuss. Like there was no excuses. You, you had to go do it, but he was big on training and learning and made sure you understood all the aspects of what you were doing so that you could you could figure out how to get through the situation safely. Um, now, this question is from uh, your brother-in-law, Glenn. And he says, uh, what does good planning have to do with success? <laughs> good planning is everything for success. Uh, in the diving community, everybody knows um, what each other's job is to back up so we can move amongst our stations and, and change around jobs, but it's the planning for the job that makes it all go right. You know, you have to have the right equipment for the job. You have to know what the conditions are you're going to be working in. You have to be able to um, bring 
the right skill set to the uh, arena. And if you don't know, you need to know that you have to go out and get that expert and have him come and be a guest member of your team. Um, you don't always have all the answers. And when you don't, the smartest guy in the room knows to go and find that and bring it in. Right. He's not the smartest guy because he knows the answer, but he's the smartest guy because, you know, he went and, got and, and he wanted me to tell you that you gave him a challenge coin and he's going to get a dental challenge coin. <laughs> for you, so outstanding. And, and I and I owe you and I owe you a challenge coin as well. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is what would the adult self say to the younger version of yourself? If you had to go back in time, if you could give yourself some advice, what would that be? I don't know. I think I. it's hard to say you would change anything because all the experiences you have are the things that form you. So I don't know if I would be the per person today that I am if I didn't have all those experiences. So I'm not sure I would, I would chop a lot of it up. But I think, I guess if I had to choose, I would say um, start sooner. Um, you know, balance the growth and learning and with the good times and the um, life experiences, because life is short and, and it can be short. You, you know, this is God's given us this gift of every day. Right. And, it, and we've heard, you know, we see on the news, all the bad things that happen, it could be taken away from us in a heartbeat. Right. So I think looking back, I would, I would say that, you know, balance a little bit more of the, um, hard work with with the good times and and make sure you you reach out and enjoy life as you're as you're going along and don't just either work yourself to death or play yourself to death because neither one is is the right answer but balance in your work have you ever had a situation where you work with somebody or someone else that they put someone's life at risk and how did you deal with that um because i know you have a very dangerous position uh, profession so i that goes back to the preparation portion of it but when you have a difficult situation like that how do you address it and how do you deal with it well so the biggest answer is and i have struggled with this throughout my career is to you know remain calm not get excited and that's that's one of the one of my faults is i'm a very excitable person and i kind of ramp up pretty quickly um so trying to figure out the calmness to make yourself step back see the situation, you know, adjust, make do, figure out the right answer. Because when you're in that excited state, it's really hard to reach back into your toolbox to find exactly the right tool. So, you know, so I think it's that building a sense of ability to calm yourself or to um, ease, ease yourself when you're, when you're hyper and sensitive. <laughs> So as a leader, what do you like to impart to your team? What do you want to give your team before you leave this, your job? What do you want to teach the people under you? What's the most valuable lesson that you want to give to them? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because it's, it's a little bit different for everybody, right? Everybody brings something else to the workplace. And um, I, I think at my position in life, I think it, it comes down to just a good work ethic. You know, it, nobody's going to give you anything for free. And those things that are worth getting, they take extra effort. I mean, if it was easy or if it was um, 
simple than you know anybody would do it. But the things that challenge you, that um, are worthwhile obtaining in your life, that you know that that next degree or that next level of certification in your work or being able to skill set get you know becoming the best underwater welder in the navy or or becoming you know the expert in some field like ship's husbandry or submarine rescue those all take extraordinary levels of effort you've got to practice you've got to learn you've got to repeat you've got to talk to a lot of different people in those fields so it's it's putting in the effort to get the return. You can't just show up and become the best in the world. And I mean, you can see like the Winter Olympics are going on right now. And those athletes, they talk about the hours they've invested just in a single skill to make that one perfect flip, turn, twist, flight work. You know, it's, it's effort. And so the devotion and the effort is really what's going to get you to the end end state, whatever it is you choose. You may not, you know, want to be the king of the world, but you know, if you want to be the court jester, you got to work at that too, right? So I have a few last questions for you. Um, what do you like the best about being a dad? Oh man, it's just the seeing them explode with joy when they achieve and do and and watching them, you know, if the struggles are as important as the the, the wins because they show you what kind of person they're developing into and and just seeing them every day work out the issues of life and 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 going through just it's a huge joy to me and then the camaraderie of it i mean they are just awesome my boys are fantastic to be around so it makes being a dad wonderful so i really really love that part of that whole thing and you know none of us none of the boys in this house would need to work if it wasn't for my wife she's the one that holds us all together in the glue. And so being a dad is only relevant as important because I've got her as a partner to, you know, be a parent with. So, and what's left on your bucket list? Oh, for me, I'm, I'm, I've got a few more years and I'm hoping to retire. Um, once I finish that up, um, I want to get out and see more of the world. I've seen a lot of the world and I love it. And I want to continue to do that. Um, and I think I really want to get back into the woods, um, get on the trail. Backpacking is a passion and I want to do more of it. And so my, my next challenge is for my retirement is I want to do the John Muir Trail, 210 miles, just for fun. And what do you this is a, always a tough question when i ask it is um what do you want to be remembered what do you want to be remembered for when you leave this world wow um i'm not sure that there's a need to be remembered but i would like to leave enough mark on people that i did good with or did good to that they would share that goodness and do pass that on help others maybe i guess i think it's if you show investment and you invest and you do it unselfishly you hope that that would be something else that someone else would take and be able to carry on well i want to give a we're all done here i, I want to go ahead and uh give a quick shout out to um a couple of people that made this possible uh your 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 brother-in-law's uh 
Greg and Glenn and uh, to your wonderful wife as well. And please, please give your regards to your kids. It's been such an honor. Thank you for your service for this country. Um, you have one of the most difficult jobs I've ever heard anyone having. And what, what I think is understated is that you're very understated, but you're one of the best in the world at what you do. Um, thank you so much for being on here. Um, thanks. I want to thank my producer, Brian, for producing this. Um, and uh, we have some really, really great guests coming up. Uh, Travis Stevens will be here. He will be our next guest. He is a three-time Olympian. He's a silver medalist. And also, um, yeah, is there anything that you want to close out with, Mark? I think Mark is having some difficulties connecting with us. But um, thank you so much for being here, everybody. And have a wonderful, wonderful week. And we'll see you next time.